welcome to America Can We Talk and our very special Thursday shows. Love, love our Thursday shows because we have an in-studio audience, which is fun. Uh, we have a more in-depth interview with one person, and today the individual we're talking to is Jason Isaac, the Honorable Jason Isaac. He is with the Texas Public Policy Foundation. I'll tell you more about him in just a moment, but I did also want to, while I have your attention in the beginning, uh, two things I want to mention. Uh, one is that next week on this show, we're going to have a gentleman talk with us about the state of election integrity uh, in Texas in the most recent primaries and more broadly nationally. Uh, that person is Seth Keschel. has been on the show a year ago or so, uh, coming on to talk about his deep dive into the, especially Texas primary and the concerns about election fraud. The following Thursday, we have Julie Kelly joining us. She is the relentless author on the American Greatness website, and she has been focused, laser-focused, on the January 6th episode in Washington, uh, the kinds of charges being brought against people, the treatment of American citizens in our judicial system who have been locked in jail in Washington, some of whom have never been yet charged, uh, many in solitary confinement, our due process requirements not being followed, and she's following the trials uh, that are involved with some people who, where the trials are going forward. So she's really a premier expert on January 6th, and so she'll be joining us the following Thursday. So you don't want to miss Thursday shows or any other day, actually. Loving you tune in every single day to America Can We Talk. Um, I also want to just thank you on these uh, special Thursday shows. Draw your attention to our website. If you're one of our listeners on radio, first of all, great. I'm so glad you're listening on radio. Uh, just so you know, you're just hearing a voice. I'll tell you that our website, my, first of all, my name is Debbie Georgiatis. Our show is called America Can We Talk. The website is americacanwetalk.org. You can go to that website, see all of our past shows, past interviews, our Why It Matters feature that people seem to really like. Um, blog posts. We just try to make it a place to come to uh, and listen to the show either live or later. You can watch the show live right at the website americacanwetalk.org. I urge you to do that. And as long as you're there, you could sign up for our weekly newsletter. I send a once a week newsletter, usually on Friday, sometimes it ends up being Saturday, uh, linking to our past shows over the week and telling you upcoming events. And especially I'll begin to tell you more about an event we're having this fall. We're having our third annual America Can We Talk Women for Freedom Summit. We've already lined up five amazingly wonderful speakers. I'll tell you more about that soon. It'll be on our website as well. But love to have you become a part of our America Can We Talk family. Uh, you can join America Can We Talk also at our website, americacanwetalk.org. Right across the top, um, it says members. You hit that, you hit join. A mere $50 a year, and you can be a member of America Can We Talk, which does many things for you, including giving you discounts at our events, our summits, and on our products. That was a long introduction, but I keep meaning to do this on a Thursday. Now let's turn to Jason Isaacs. You know, a lot of people in America are Isaac, excuse me, Jason Isaac. Uh, a lot of people in America are concerned about, rightfully concerned about the cost of just a tank of gas. They're just saying, what in the world is happening? Why does our gasoline cost so much all of a sudden? And we're going to talk about that to start with. It's an initial issue uh, relating to, um, for the average American citizen, you know, it's a, it's a big difference if your gas costs what it did, I don't know, you know, at the end of President Trump's presidency or what it costs today uh, and how that influences Americans' life and their freedom. So we'll talk about that and that a little more deeply on energy policy. But Jason Isaac is with the Texas Public Policy Foundation. He is the director of, and I, I love this name they came up with, director of Life Life-powered, making the point we simply have to have power to have life. It's a national initiative of the Texas Public Policy Foundation uh, to raise America's energy IQ. I love that slogan also. But prior to that, uh, Jason Isaac was, uh, he is a fourth generation native Texan, uh, and he served, he was elected four times to the Texas state legislature. He was a state representative from Hayes and Blanco counties in the Texas Hill Country. Uh, he is their premier expert on energy, and he writes a column at Epoch Times, E-P-O-C-H, Epoch Times, brilliant column, always focused on energy. And so we just want to talk today, not just about gas prices, but America's energy policy and what in the world our current president, he who occupies the White House, is doing what direction he's taking, what that means for the future of freedom in America. So long introduction, like welcome to the show, Jason Isaac. Thank you, Debbie. It's great to be back on. Yeah, great to see you again. Great to have you again. And you know, we have our audience here. They get to ask questions at the end, but uh, which is really fun. Well, I'm going to tell you that um, 
you kind of wasted a lot of my time this morning because I was trying to get ready for this. I started reading your columns and then going back and reading more and reading more. I mean, these are so fact-filled. I don't mean wasted, honestly. My first reaction was you're a wonderful writer in explaining energy policy kind of to the average Joe, which is a wonderful thing. And the second thing I was going to mention was I, I found myself getting angry at the way energy policy is manipulated and how it hurts people. I mean, it hurts people, what we do with energy policy. So, he who occupies the White House is saying that we're, our high gas prices are the cause of Putin. In fact, he came out with a slogan, Putin's price hike. So we'll start with that. It, are our, high, our high gasoline taxes, or prices right now, are they due to some things Putin, Putin has done or not done? <laughs> no, this started really with the current administration. You look back at Inauguration Day a little over a year ago, and the price of natural gas that we use to heat our homes and produce our electricity has nearly doubled. You look at the cost of a barrel of oil, uh, which 70% of that goes into the tanks of the cars that we use to get to work, the buses that we use to get our students to schools, that cost has more than doubled since the current administration took office. And it has begun on day one of their administration with this whole of government approach to a war on American fossil fuel producers while they're propping up OPEC, Russia, Saudi Arabia, and China with imported energy from those countries. It's, it's completely backwards policy and it's taking us, taken us from energy independence in 2019 to where we are today, and that is de completely dependent on foreign countries. Unfortunately, most of Europe is completely dependent on Russia and can't cut off their gas supply, even they, though they don't like Russia attacking Ukraine. But it's been since day one of the current administration with edict after edict, uh, and it has resulted in more expensive energy and expensive energy hurts the poor. It does. That's one. I mean, you make so many great points. See, so yeah, these are your articles I read. They have all these little stickies. So I, I think I told you in an email, we have to talk a lot of things today in one hour. So we have to whip through them. But <laughs> you're, which I really, honestly, I just think it's so important because climate stuff is one of the, one of the issues where I think that most people think they're not experts and they're not climatologists. They're not trained to assess the situation. And when they are constantly bombarded with media hype about climate alarmism, uh, you know, that somehow we're going to damage the earth, you know, irretrievably, that we're destroying the planet for future generations. People just feel frightened and they want to just say, okay, okay, tell us what to do. And it is just the biggest uh, fraud. I mean, the, the perpetuation of policies, uh, it, it's such a fraud. And I think what you do, what you do in providing information, data, facts, logic, and arguments is, is the only answer for America to get out of, from under control of the climate alarmists. Okay. I really am yeah, Absolutely. It's a climate cult, if you will. And, and that's, that's their faith in uh, really destroying mankind. It's unfortunate. Uh, but in, and now we're hearing, which is something I've known for years, that this is collusion that's, that's funded by the Russian government. And they have done a wonderful job of being successful in their goals, and that's to drive fear through the Americans and get policy moved away from fossil fuels uh, it, so that they can then get the rest of the world dependent on their energy sources. When we produce energy more responsibly here in the U.S. than, than anywhere else around the world, uh, but the funds coming from Russia to a Bermuda account now funding groups like NRDC, uh, which is another just a, basically a branch of the climate cult, uh, along with several other organizations that have been driving policy in the wrong direction, away from energy dependence, away from dense, reliable energy in the form of fossil fuels. Uh, they've even funded anti-nuclear campaigns, which if you thought the climate cult was so concerned about CO2 emissions, they'd be 100% for nuclear, but they're not. It's about control, uh, and CO2 is one of those you know, necessary things for, for life on Earth, uh, which you look at what's happened around the planet over the last you know, 100 years, it's gotten greener. There's, we have deserts that are actually turning into farmland now because of this increase in carbon dioxide emissions, again, necessary for life on Earth. And, uh, you know, I think our public schools have, have stopped teaching photosynthesis uh, because people think that CO2 is dangerous. Um, and many companies and countries uh, are now pushing this net zero, which really means zero life.
Yes, it does. That's it. I want to get to net zero. I want to go back to Biden for just a moment, though. So he took office and right away, one of the first initiatives he had, I think it was in the first week, had to do with energy. And you said when we started that some of Biden's changes early on in his presidency began to drive the costs of gas, of oil up. So what were those? Are there a few basic things that were especially harmful that he did in the beginning of his presidency? Yeah, absolutely. You had the Department of Interior that took permitting processes and, and permitting applications and mining applications from their state offices, these regional offices, and moved it back or moved it to D.C. under the control of one person, Laura Daniel Davis. Looking at my notes here, uh, Laura Daniel Davis is an environmental activist and a member of the climate cult that is trying to drive the U.S. away from using fossil fuels. So one way to do that is this whole of government approach that the Biden administration has been implementing. And so they've taken this, this licensing and permitting an application process from regional offices of the Department of Interior and moved it into one person in Washington, D.C., who is anti-fossil fuels, anti-American energy even took away the ability for the World Bank to invest in countries that are in de developing infrastructure based on fossil fuels. This is something that the Trump administration had greenlighted. They had turned this ability back on to allow the World Bank and other financial institutions to help countries in need. These are third world countries to develop reliable energy sources, reliable electricity to uh, based on fossil fuels and on day one the current administration says nope we're not making funds available we want those people to be poor we want them to be dependent uh, and, and that's just an absolute backwards way of looking at things especially when you consider these developing countries and and who's impacted the most by these policies and unfortunately it's women around the world that face the brunt of these environmental climate cult policies to share some numbers with you, women spend 200 million hours a day walking to collect water. That's heartbreaking. Oh gosh. Yeah, 200 million hours a day that could be spent on civic engagement, uh, furthering your education, uh, getting in, starting a business, entrepreneurship. But no, the women are the ones that are burdened with these policies around the world. Uh, average woman on the face of the earth walks over three miles a day to collect water. That's approximately five kilometers uh, to any of your foreign viewers that may be watching. That's atrocious. And for the federal government here in the United States to say, we're not going to make funds available to help those women uh, if they're developing any infrastructure based on fossil fuels, which we've used more of here in the last 50 years. We've produced more fossil fuel energy. We've used more fossil fuel energy and we've reduced harmful pollution 78% in the last 51 years here in the United States. The reason that Biden, and I like your term, the climate cult, but the Biden and the climate cult, one way they get so much um, headway with policy about climate is because they've convinced people that fossil fuels are just plain dangerous, that it's dangerous to use them. There's an emergency at hand where we have to reduce and then eliminate our use of fossil fuels. And the fact is, well, much of what you write about includes data about the fossil fuels, including of America having become more able to use fossil fuels and be and produce less pollution. I'm not saying it well, but tell us about America and our ability to use fossil fuels and how we're actually better than most of the world and how we do in terms of the impact on the environment. Oh, absolutely. Again, the reduction in harmful pollution, 78% in the last 51 years. We're world leaders in clean air. During the first couple of months of the COVID shutdowns, when we had 50% fewer vehicles on the road because people weren't going to work, they weren't going to school. There are cities like here in Austin, Texas, where the air quality actually got worse because we're so near a natural state of air quality at cities in places around the United States. We should be calling on our trading partners to meet our air quality standards when it comes to harmful pollution, not this silly Paris Accord that you know, asks for people to quit using uh, CO2 or reduce CO2 emissions, which again are necessary for life on earth, but it doesn't do anything to improve the environment. It doesn't do anything to reduce 
future temperature rises. And our planet is warming. We're coming out of an ice age. But any warming is going to be mild and manageable if you have access to affordable, reliable energy. If you don't, then it's going to be very expensive and very costly. Things that we saw 100 years ago with, with hurricanes destroying and killing thousands of people in the early 1900s. But with access to more energy, we've seen in the last 100 years a reduction in deaths from weather-related events of 98%, while all, while, all while our global population has quadrupled. Uh, so we've just seen incredible strides when it comes to producing energy responsibly, improving air quality, and we're number one in access when it comes to clean and safe drinking water. There's nearly a billion people on the face of the earth that have no access to electricity. Imagine life without electricity. Imagine life that you have to walk and collect water. And then you have to collect animal dung or wood to heat that water to get it somewhat potable uh, so that you can consume it and hopefully not get sick. But that's not the case. and That's certainly not the policies that we're seeing coming down from this current administration. You have to remember it's oil and gas production in the U.S. that saved the whales. And I love telling people that story because their minds blown like the first time I heard it. You think of what we were people were harvesting and hunting whales for over 100 years ago. And now here we are with responsible oil and gas production. We saved the whales. Actually, also saved the, the trees. You look at coal production, and when, when they found coal in the United Kingdom, they cut, quit cutting down what was then Sherwood Forest because they were using wood to produce heat. And now you can have a good, dense energy source in the form of coal. And here in the United States, we have pollution control technology. I've joked with members of Congress that it'd be, of all the technology the Chinese steal from us, it would be nice if they would utilize our pollution control technology, uh, but they don't. And they're burning coal without pollution control technology, not capturing the ash, just letting it into the atmosphere. And that actually impacts the air quality here in the United States. So if China would adopt our policies on clean air, it would actually be beneficial to the United States. That is an amazing, uh, both are great points. I want to go back to CO2 one more time because I think that the, the CO2 has been so villainized and mm -hmm. people are so proud of a tiny reduction. But two things you uh, repeated several times in your articles. Um, one has to do with the idea that if the world or if America implemented every single um, demand of the climate alarmists, that the amount, and you have, you'll be able to more refine what I'm saying, but if we were to follow all the demands of the climate alarmists, we would only reduce the average temperature on Earth by less than one degree 100 years from now. Is that right? <laughs> yeah, that, that's right. If, if the U.S. completely eliminated CO2 emissions by 2030, that's just a little, little over eight years from now, completely eliminate CO2 emissions. That's over 80% of our electricity that comes from, from clean coal and natural gas electric generation. That's all of our transportation with the exception of a few electric vehicles that the rich have that are powered by clean coal and natural gas and, and nuclear. If you eliminate all CO2 emissions, oh, that's breweries, ref refiners, uh, distillers, Get rid of all those CO2 emissions by 2030. The temperature differential by 2100 is less than two-tenths of a degree. And that's using the same model that the UN International Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change uses to justify the Paris Accord, where they're trying to avoid one and a half or two degrees of warming. If you have one and a half to two degrees of warming over the next hundred years, that's going to be very mild and very manageable and people flock to warmer climates. We found out the hard way in Texas and people in Germany in the UK are finding out the hard way now. Cold temperatures are much more dangerous to humanity than warmer temperatures are. And for every person that will die of a heat related illness, 40 people will freeze to death. And we're seeing that number get worse now as energy costs skyrocket across the European Union, the UK, the United States, and Canada. And these colder temperatures, more and more people are dying. Staten there about the UK and they and their the impact of the rising cost of energy and people cannot afford to keep their homes warm. And it was something like in the last year, three thousand people froze to death in the UK. Is that right? Yes, yeah, you're seeing, again, those freezing deaths are on the rise. I think the number was over 3,000 people that froze to death in the United Kingdom alone. I mean, that is staggering. It's amazing that somehow the climate cult, the climate alarmists, the climate cult people 
can push their cause as though they are trying to save the world and save people, and yet their policies are lethal. They're policies that drive energy costs up so people can't heat their homes. And you make a great point frequently, too, about it mostly impacts the poor. I mean, wealthier people are just going to pay more and pay more, but the poor can't do that. You're right. Here in 2018 in the United States, 14% of the families, so that's greater than one in 10 families, gets a disconnect notice from a utility every every month. So that's just mind-boggling to me. And that number's only gotten worse since 2018. That's just when I have the latest numbers. One in 10 American families will get a disconnect notice from a utility every month. It's only getting worse now as you see these costs skyrocket here just since this current administration has taken place. And they told us this going in, that they were anti-fossil fuels, that they were going to do everything they could to speed up the transition. Even President Obama said that electricity rates would necessarily skyrocket. Uh, and this is essentially the same administration carrying out their same edict to appease a few self-righteous coastal elites uh, to do nothing to improve the environment. We believe that environmental policy should serve mankind, not the other way around. And one other stat I want to get at, because again, I think the left has been successful in large part convincing people that CO2 is a poison almost. It's so dangerous to have, and we've got to do everything we can to take every particle out of the environment that we can. There is some minimum amount of CO2 in the environment needed for, for life on Earth to thrive. And I, it's like 1.5 out of, you help me with this, but I mean, if you get below a certain level of CO2, life cannot thrive. You're right. Yeah, I, I was actually listening to uh, Patrick Moore, the former co-founder of Greenpeace, talking just this past weekend with the Steamboat Institute. Uh, and he was talking about at 150 parts per million of CO2, plant life cannot survive. And we're just over 400. We're at about 420 parts per million. But what the media hits on is that per million piece. They, want, they think million sounds dangerous and frightening. But to put that into a mathematical perspective, we're at 0.04% of our atmosphere is CO2. Now, greenhouses will actually increase their, their, their concentration of CO2 to, pro to encourage plant growth. And actually those plants, as they get more CO2, they require less water. Uh, they'll, they'll pump it up to 1600 parts per million of CO2 with people working in those greenhouses and they're fine. Uh, so we're at 420 parts per million or 0.04% of our atmosphere uh, is CO2. It, it certainly does cause a minimal amount of warming, but it is incredibly insignificant in the concentrations that we see present today. Yeah, I mean, honestly, I think the way the um, alarmism has developed over 20 or more years, whenever, I guess Al Gore really started the alarmism, but it has gotten to the point where people think it's a, it's a treacherous poison or, or any CO2 in the atmosphere at all is dangerous, and yet there we're barely above the, the amount you need for life on Earth to survive. I mean, that's where we are. And yet we're, we're scrambling to destroy it. Okay, so you also yeah, wrote about- made a lot of money scaring a lot of people. That's why in America, I think it's more than 50% of the children suffer from what Michael Schellenberger and others has written about. And psychologists have named chronic fear of environmental doom. I see just today that Hanoi Jane Fonda has joined the bandwagon and she's looking to cash in on that money train and launch some, some climate cult pack of hers. Uh, if, if Jane Fonda is promoting something, you absolutely know it's anti-American. Yeah, and then we're against it. That's right. Okay, you also, uh, President Biden had this national net zero strategy. And, and you wrote about this, which is very, very helpful, as a, a climate executive order very early on. And he was basically saying that we're going to have this national net zero strategy by 2050. And you're pointing out that he's kind of slow rolling it. And I, you make two great points about it. One, it's impossible to get there. I mean, and when he says net zero, he means net zero additional emissions of CO2. Is that right? That, that's correct. Basically level off uh, where we are, our CO2 emissions and what we're reducing equals, everything equals zero. So you've, you've figured out some sort of carbon capture technology to capture CO2 emissions, the same amount that's equal to what you're you're, you're having as emissions from power plants or from vehicles, uh, things of that nature, but it needs to zero out that we don't want that 420 parts per million to increase anymore. But 
no mind what China is doing or what Russia is doing or what India is doing, because what they're doing is building thousands of coal-fired power plants. And again, if they would just use the pollution control technology, that would be great, like we have here in the United States. That's why you can have communities that are right next to coal-fired power plants or natural gas-fired power plants, and the air quality is perfectly healthy for human life. Yeah, you know, um, you're... Uh, there, your, as I say, you wrote many really great pieces on Epoch Times. One was this one that directly talked about Biden's uh, national net zero strategy, making the point, you know, even you can't get there, number one, and, and realistically, you can't get to net zero. But even if you did, it's fruitless at stopping climate change, which if people just got that fact, the whole fervor for climate change and all the advocacy would just dissipate if people figured that out. Yeah, if they just actually look at the math and the science behind achieving net zero and how it doesn't improve the environment. It doesn't mitigate any future warming, uh, but what it does do is increase the cost of energy significantly. And as I say often, expensive energy hurts the poor. Why would we wanna do that when we're world leaders in environmental protection here in the United States? Uh, again, our air quality is fantastic. Our access to clean water, uh, we're just really leading the world in production of energy. And this current administration has, again, taken this entire whole of government approach, whether it's the Department of Homeland Security going to have electric vehicles by 2050 and meet the net zero commitments, or the EPA, or the Department of Interior, or the Securities and Exchange Commission, who next week will announce their ESG mandates, that's environmental social governance scores, that they're going to push down on every single business in the United States to disclose their plan to go net zero. They're forcing us to comply with the Paris Accord, which is not the law of the land. It has never been ratified by Congress, but they're going to do it by fiat, by bureaucratic red tape, and crush Americans. The EPA just announced their cross-state air pollution rule that they will finalize here in the next few months. It is going to make electric generation even more expensive, less reliable, it just costs so much more, and do nothing to improve the environment. It's staggering. I do want to have a significant conversation about ESG in just a moment. But the other um, aspect of all the, the broad sense of alarmism is people believe that the alternative things like wind and solar can really uh, very uh, easily replace the energy we currently use by burning fossil fuels. And, and they just think, well, if it, that we have all this great, um, abundant, available solar and, and wind energy, you know, why don't we just make the transition? We, we don't need fossil fuels anymore. Talk a little bit about, first of all, how much fossil fuels are needed in order to produce, to, to produce solar and, and wind power and how really inefficient they are in terms of how much energy they actually produce. Yeah, we found out here in Texas firsthand last February during the blackouts and the freeze that we had this five day long freeze that solar was producing zero electricity because the panels were covered up with snow and ice. Uh, wind generation produced 8% of the electricity that we used during this week of the freeze, the blackouts in Texas. Yet at that point in time, they made up 33% of our grid. The installed capacity on our grid, 33% was renewables that were producing 8% electric generation. Our coal and natural gas and nuclear were producing just over 91% of the electricity we consumed that week, but they're only two thirds of our grid. So they were clearly uh, outworking and outpunting their coverage, if you will. Uh, and, and so we, we learned really because of, of 700 people uh, died during the week of the blackouts in Texas. They died from carbon monoxide poisoning, which is actually dangerous, but you do that when you sit in a car in a garage uh, or you burn things inside your home without ventilation or you move a barbecue propane grill inside your home uh, it, without proper ventilation. People actually died from carbon monoxide poisoning. Others froze to death, including an 11-year-old boy uh, in Corpus Christi froze to death with his younger brother in bed with him. And it's these policies, this market distorting policies that have been propping up wind and solar for decades now, both from the federal government and the states that have subsidies for these, uh, that wind can put electricity on the grid at a negative price, meaning they can pay customers to take their product because they're so heavily subsidized and still make money. 
And natural gas, coal, and nuclear cannot compete with that. And that's why we're seeing early retirements of this reliable sources of thermal generation. Uh, but you look at the landmass. If, if the U.S. were to go completely 100% renewable, you would need two states of California completely installed with wind and solar. So think of the size of the state of California. You would need two of those. Uh, Robert Bryce has a great illustration that his daughter, his younger daughter drew for him or, or put together, and it's two states of California over the U.S., uh, and you can visualize how much landmass is going to be needed to produce that electricity when the sun is shining or when the wind is blowing. Uh, you want to talk about batteries. There's there's the entire installed battery capacity on Earth today would keep the lights on in the U.S. for about 15 seconds. That's Say unattainable. That. That's unachievable. It's incredibly expensive to produce enough electricity and the battery requirements. Then I don't even want to get into the mining yet and how much earth you're going to have to move, the rare earth elements that you're going to get, and the four-year-olds that are going to be working in the Congo to mine the cobalt, uh, to produce the batteries for cars and homes, uh, and utility-scale batteries as well. As I say, this issue, almost more than any other issue, climate change, fear of climate change, fear of what could happen, it is among the issues that the uh, leftists, who really are targeting getting us to socialism, can use to manipulate public thought. And people do feel, rightfully feel, they're not educated well enough. And so when alarmists tell them these things are going to happen, they aren't, they, they aren't, um, so they don't have enough facts and data and confidence in their own views to, to fight back. And so they just surrender. That's what they just surrender. Okay. I want to hit, though, so the, the left is always trying to think of good ways to solve things. So one was there was a, the America Competes Act of 2022. I think it just only passed the House. I don't think it's gone to the Senate. Is that right? It hasn't gone through the Senate. But America Competes was this you know, great idea. They claim it's going to really, a 2,900-page bill, going to give the United States upper an economic upper hand over China. And so everyone goes, yay, that sounds good. So what was wrong with that solution? Well, you start to look at that was and I, I didn't recognize the name of the bill when you said it, because I think we just referred to it as the pro-China bill uh, here at the Texas Public Policy Foundation, because that's essentially what it was. It was all these mandates for renewable electricity that's manufactured in China and distributed to the United States. Uh, it, it has mandates for electric vehicles and electric vehicle charging stations. So nothing like people making over $100,000 a year driving an electric vehicle and getting even more government assistance. That's the last people on the face of the earth that need government assistance is 100,000 plus making families driving electric vehicles, but that's what the government wants to do. They want to fund a climate core of hundreds of thousands of people to go door to door to make sure that your home is efficient as it should be. And if it's not, they want to redistribute your wealth uh, to, to make sure that it gets up to standards so that you actually reduce your electric consumption. They want smart meter technology in the back of the homes. California is looking at this right now. They already tell you in California during peak times in the summer, 5 to 10 p.m., don't charge your electric vehicles because they just don't have enough electricity on the grid to meet demand. So uh, you're right in the middle of fire season. If you have an electric vehicle, good luck fleeing if you need to. Uh, it's just incredible poor policies and poor management from the California government and bureaucrats. Uh, but they want to put those policies on people all across America. They want this behind the meter technology so that they can actually shut down and shut off electricity that you may be using uh, if it's exceeding what they believe is an acceptable amount of electricity. This is a perfect point to segue into the political agenda. I do want to get into ESG in a moment because that's a whole other arena that people need to be alert to. But there is, to me, it seems, in fact, I'll tell you, years ago, Rush Limbaugh, very early on in his show, was saying, the climate movement is the new home for the radical left socialists. And honestly, um, I didn't buy it when he first said it. It just sounded like, well, okay, they might be wrong on some of their facts. They might be a little bit overly alarmed. But I didn't recognize it when he said it as a political agenda that it is. But climate alarmism and climate control, the kind of thing you're describing, where they're going to turn off your power if you deviate from the rules, it is really leading America towards socialism. I'd love to have you just talk about that a little bit, the political mission of environmentalism. 
Yeah, Rush Rush was right on that aspect probably before a bunch of other people. But look at what's happened in Germany, where they have this pledge to go 100% renewable. They're at about 50% of their installed capacity now is renewable. And prices are up over 60% in the last year alone in Germany. And now they are subsidizing coal. The government has to step in because there's no more industry anymore. They've gotten rid of the coal-fired producing electricity. They're shutting down early retiring nuclear, just like France was doing up until just months ago when when, uh, Macron came out and said, that's it. We're going to build more nuclear. We're going to continue to embrace nuclear energy. We're not doing early retirements. Uh, And the climate cult flipped out at him for doing that. But he recognized that nothing moves an economy like affordable, reliable electricity and affordable, reliable energy. But Germany in this this climate alarmism has spread out throughout the EU. Uh, It's now so pervasive in the United Nations that there, again, this Paris Climate Accord does nothing to improve the environment, but does everything to increase the cost of energy. Uh, It is now throughout not only countries, but you have companies that are adopting and taking pledges to meet the terms of the Paris Accord. Uh, And so we'll get into ESG a little bit, but Rush was right. This is socialism. This is a way to control people by denying them electricity. Uh, I've mentioned years ago that this whole Medicare for all and this universal health care system that Bernie Sanders and AOC and others have been pushing will be electricity for all. And electricity should be a right. Well, they've taken those rights away from so many people, not only in the United States, but around the world by implementing policies that make energy scarce and drive up the cost. I'll tell you one example I've given to people when I say that this environmental uh, stuff is really leading us to socialism. If you, if you thought of a tax policy, if the government put in place, sure, you, it's, we have a free market. You can earn as much as you want. You, know, you go out there and work hard. But you know, at some level, your tax rate is 100%. And so everybody above a certain point, you're you're just going to send it all back in anyway. It's the government using tax policy to expand its power over you. And and, and tax policy is about freedom, is about how much money you get to keep after you work hard that you get to keep and live your life versus what the government has. Well, energy is used in the same way. If they say, yeah, go ahead. It it sure is. And I'm so glad to hear you talk about this tax policy, because one thing that we as Americans need to remember is our country was founded on private property rights. And we need to start recognizing and doing a better job of recognizing that our money is our private property. And when the government is going to enforce and mandate uh, certain subsidies, so they're taking money out of one pocket, they're increasing the burden on us taking our money out of one pocket, then all of a sudden, because of the subsidies, now we have higher electricity rates on the other side. So we're paying out of that pocket too. This is theft and it's done by the government in the form of subsidies and market manipulation that is costing Americans more money and they're taking more of our private property. I love that. And you know, anytime the, the, the idea the government could say to you, I mean, it's one thing if they say, we're shutting off your electricity because you haven't paid your bill in two years. That's one thing. And that still may be poverty, but at some point people have to pay for it. But if they're going to say you only get a certain amount and then we're just going to notice, we think you're charging your car too often or you're keeping your, whatever you're doing, keeping your pool heated and, and we're just going to cut you off. That just doesn't belong in free America. And people need to have that sense, recognize this is how energy policy is used to expand whatever you want to call it, cultural Marxism, expand socialism, take away the inherent right of freedom in America. Anyway, I'm, spe- I'm just preaching to the choir right now. But um, one quick thing I want to hit in this Block Island um, Block Island uh, wind farm, I guess it was, it was a uh, run turbines. And just quickly talk about how well that's going. <laughs> Well, uh, if my kids are performing that well in school, uh, we'd be having some serious conversations right now. But the Block Island Wind Farm is the first wind farm installed in the United States. It's actually Block Island is right off of Rhode Island. I was there just just months ago uh, and actually just received some pictures a couple of weeks ago from a fisherman who was out in the area. These five wind farms, only one of them has been operational over the last two years. And I saw the masts, the poles that hold up the turbines and the blades. And what is leaking out of the top of those? Oil, right out of the top of the turbine, down the mast and into the ocean. But these are supposed to be the environmental panacea that uh, is incredibly green energy. 
Well, it's absolutely awful. You have equipment issues. Only one of the five turbines has worked over the last two years. The cables have been exposed. These were cables that were buried under the seafloor. They have come up. Uh, they can't fix them in the winter because it's too cold and the weather conditions don't permit it. They can't fix it in the summer because the tourist season. And so it keeps getting delayed. What was supposed to be a $6 million project to rebury these high power, high voltage lines uh, is now anticipated to cost 12 million dollars. And there's a reason why a company like Orsted, this, this Finnish company, is investing in this technology, and it's because they want the subsidies. They want the investment tax credits. They want the production tax credits. And as long as those blades are spinning, they're making money off of Americans. Uh, it's that money being taken out of one of our pockets against our wish. And they're proposing doing this all up and down the eastern shore, the, the, the shore all through the Gulf of Mexico and the United States. And it's foreign companies that are leading these investments. Orsted still has a contract with Gazprom. They're, they're refusing to walk away from a contract with Gazprom through 2030. The Gazprom is the Russian-owned uh, gas provider in, in, in Russia. So Orsted taking American tax dollars, giving money to Russia, who's invading Ukraine. We've got to stop this. Foreign companies should not be investing in wind energy production in the United States. We've got to put our foot down and say enough is enough. We're tired of the higher rates of electricity. We're tired of the reliability going down and decreasing, impacting lives. Uh, we've just got to say enough is enough and stop this, especially when they're a complete environmental disaster like the Block Island wind farm. Fortunately, the Texas Public Policy Foundation has stepped in and we're suing the federal government. You can learn more about that at our website, texaspolicy.com. Uh, but our litigation team has, has filed suit against the federal government because more proposed wind farms owned by Orsted have just been greenlit. No environmental process whatsoever. And these will absolutely destroy fishing grounds and the area where the North Atlantic right whale uh, migrates and spends most of the year in this particular area, which is an extremely dangerous species, under 400 left of them on the face of the earth. It will destroy their habitat. It will destroy fishing grounds that have been fished for hundreds of years. So that's a sustainable fishing area providing food for millions of Americans will be completely destroyed by these wind farms and the Department of Interior, the Department of Fish and Wildlife Service, the EPA, they're just green lighting these projects without any environmental assessments whatsoever. And we're stepping in and we filed suit and look forward to winning that case and preventing these wind farms from going in and actually destroying wildlife. Wow, I love that. We have to get to ESG, but to respond to what you just said, I love when TPPF took on, I decided to go forward with a litigation division, essentially say, we write great policy, we have great experts, but sometimes you have to litigate to push the point. I love that you all did that. Um, and what a hypocrisy. What a, I mean, I can't even think of a strong enough word. The environmental movement pushes to have these wind turbines built offshore that are they get to circumvent all of the other, what everybody else has to follow in terms of the environmental permitting process so the environmentalists don't have to follow the rules they created to create wind farms that are destructive of animals in their natural environment. That, that's just yeah, so you, rich, rich with environmental. The environmental left may have gone too far because they've riled up Michael Moore, of all people. I, I rarely ever recommend anyone watch a Michael Moore film, but there's one called Planet of the Humans that talks about uh, one of his, his, his business partners. They used to protest mountaintop removal in Vermont uh, for coal extraction. Now they're protesting mountaintops being removed to install wind farms. And it's my understanding that the state of Vermont has actually taken a position and will not allow wind-generated electricity in the state of Vermont because of the environmental destruction and the loss of habitat. Environmentalists point out that the greatest threat to endangered species like the North Atlantic right whale is loss of habitat and nothing destroys habitat like wind and solar-generated electricity. To, to replace a, a, a thousand megawatt power plant of natural gas takes about, and that takes about three square miles of land. And that's including the exploration production, the pipelines to get that electricity to a thousand megawatt power plant uh, to provide electricity for about 800,000 homes. You need 27 square miles of land for solar equivalent. That's when the sun is shining. You need 75 square miles of land for wind to produce an equivalent amount of electricity when the wind's blowing. 
it's just amazing how much habitat it destroys and to have leftist like Michael Moore coming out against it and releasing this film Planet of the Humans. Uh, I think that I think the left has finally gone too far. They sure have. I'm going to replay our interview later and write those numbers down. I couldn't keep up with them when you were saying them, but that the uh, amount of land area needed for the various kinds of power production, it is also very consequential. But trying to ESG, and I know people have been talking about a great deal, ESG standing for Environmental Social Governance Investing, and essentially... People have been hearing the term BlackRock, the organization BlackRock, the chair and CEO, Lawrence Fink, is, has a massive amount of money under his control uh, of his organization and is essentially telling companies that in order to, to be permitted to invest the money that, that they are, have under their control, they have to meet certain environmental requirements. And it appears to many that these environmental requirements are pretty much the woke climate cult alarmist people's demand. So talk a little bit. How consequential is that, that the BlackRock and, and Lawrence Fink do this? And how can companies fight back? How can people Yeah, Larry fight back? Fink has actually changed his narrative here in the last few months. He came out with his letter to CEOs, and, and we were assured that it was going to be about capitalism, but it turned out to be about stakeholder capitalism. But I think he's starting to realize that, especially this energy crisis that we're going through right now, that the current administration is blaming on Putin, uh, God forbid they, they look at themselves and actually accept responsibility for some of the policies. But Larry Fink has, has said that we've got to get to net zero. And, and he I've referred to him as the Jim Jones of the climate cult and the Kool-Aid is net zero. And it only works if everyone takes it. Um, and that's what happens is you have death and destruction if we get to net zero. Uh, Alex Epstein recently, re I think, referred to net zero as murder. Uh, and it really is. It, it's a life ending policy. But companies like BlackRock and other financial institutions that manage trillions of dollars, just to give you an example, BlackRock has about $10 trillion under managed assets. They're part of a group called the Climate Action 100 Plus that has $65 trillion under managed assets. That's over 60% of the global wealth. And their effort is to decarbonize businesses that they invest in. And they do it with pension dollars from uh, retired teachers, firefighters, police officers. They're taking their pension dollars and they're buying shares of stock in companies like, for example, ExxonMobil. And then they replace board members against management wishes with activist board members that want to decarbonize Exxon, which is in the business of producing hydrocarbons. That's like defooding a restaurant. That's the analogy that I like to use. It doesn't work out very well for the business. And it's really an anti-Texas, anti-American measure. In, in Texas, we kind of led the country, the first state in the nation to push back against these businesses, these financial institutions and banks that say, if, if you're going to boycott, divest, or sanction fossil fuels, then you're no longer welcome to do business with the state of Texas. And just yesterday, our Comptroller of Public Accounts, Glenn Hager, sent a letter to 19 financial institutions and banks asking them to clarify their position on fossil fuels because they have public statements against them that sanction them with uh, net zero policies. And next week, he'll send out letters to over 100 different financial institutions asking the same. And if they fail to respond within 60 days and make their case, they're going to be put on a boycott list in Texas which means they're no longer going to be eligible to participate in $400 billion of municipal debt. They're not going to be able to participate in over $300 billion of pension funds because here in Texas, we passed the Pension Protection Act, as I like to call it. We don't want this woke political ideology playing into investments or trying to control and manipulate businesses. It's a, we believe it's an antitrust violation. It's an illegal corporate cartel that is colluding to try to drive up financing, dry up financing to the fossil fuel industry and push it overseas. Uh, the CalSTRS, which is a California state teacher's retirement system, uh, has divested and they boycott fossil fuels but they have a billion and a half dollars invested in a Chinese construction company that builds, operates, and maintains coal-fired power plants in China. 
So they're just boycotting American fossil fuel producers, but not Chinese companies. So we've pushed back here in Texas. Other states are following suit and following the Texas Public Policy Foundation's model bill to push back against this political woke ideology from financial institutions. I love that. I saw in one of your articles mentioned West Virginia has withdrawn its funds from BlackRock. That's the other way to just starve BlackRock out and say, until you change this, we're done. Okay, I know we... Um, we are getting close to the end. I want to offer our um, audience the opportunity to ask you questions, but I want to, you know, it's easy. I mean, you, you do a brilliant job analyzing what kind of policies the Biden administration has in place, what kind of policies the, you know, Paris Climate Accords were pushing, you know, the efficacy of, of the uh, importance of fossil fuels and the, um, un, the fact it's not necessary for us to be so uh, to harsh about CO2. It's, it's a healthy thing to be in the environment. I mean, many, many things you write about, but the, this Climate alarmism is like embedded in society. It's embedded in people in, and in uh, institutions and academics. I mean, everybody feels like they're like being a little bit of a hero themselves. So, you know, how do we get out of this? How do we get ourselves back to climate rationality? And if you were in charge of America's climate policy, like what would you do to get us back on track? Well, I think the way you change the narrative is you have to educate the public. And that's why the Life Powered Project of the Texas Public Policy Foundation exists, not only to educate the public, but the policymakers as well. And we're impacting public education here in the state of Texas by advocating for changes to our education standards. And just late last year, new standards were adopted from our State Board of Education that we advocated for, that children will not have to study and make the connection between access to affordable, reliable energy and poverty malnutrition, uh, other things that are impacted and directly attributable to having good energy. And so hopefully school children will learn an unbiased fashion about all forms of energy that are produced here in Texas and how that equates to prosperity and human flourishing. Because again, there's about a billion people on the face of the earth that have no access to electricity. Almost half the world's population only has intermittent access to electricity. In those places where they don't have access to electricity, we're experiencing deforestation and mass pollution. And I've had the opportunity, I've been blessed to travel around the world and see many of these places up close and personal, and it's devastating. And I get back to the United States and I can literally breathe easier because our air quality is so incredible here. Uh, and I can actually turn on a faucet and have clean water to drink from uh, where most people around the world don't have that luxury. And that's appalling to me. And so we're working on changing the narrative within the general public. And even as young as, as our kindergarten through 12th grade students are going to hopefully be learning positive things about energy produced here in the state of Texas. And if I were in the federal administration, if I were king for a day, I would stop this whole of government approach against the fossil fuel industry. I would let federalism reign free and let the states do as they please. And if California wants to boycott fracking like they have, they're going to pay higher cost. And what's going to happen is exactly what we're seeing. People in droves, California lost congressional seats for the first time ever because of their loss in population. Uh, and people that are coming to other states, Arizona, Nevada, and Texas, they're going to where freedom is, where there's a predictable regulatory climate and low taxes. States like Florida and Texas, Tennessee are seeing incredible population gains uh, because people will move to that freedom. But I would just get the federal government out of the way, and I would encourage our financial institutions to stop colluding. And you may see some lawsuits on that front. I know the attorney general from the state of Arizona uh, recently issued a statement that he's looking into suing these financial institutions for their illegal corporate collusion to deny financing to fossil fuel producers here in the United States. Wow. I, you know, I do. I will. I, before we sign off, I'll, I'll definitely want to encourage you to talk again about TPPF and how to find more about you. But we have, <clears throat> you have a microphone over there. Do we have questions in the audience? Anybody? This is, <laughs> maybe not. Everyone's pointing at each other. Oh no, how about you? How about you? Okay, well, I asked all the great questions. That's what she said. Yeah, okay. So we know. I know. Well, I will say this is something, I, I do think that, you know, this cultural thing that has emerged where people feel like, you know, I want to prove that I'm the, uh, I'm really care about the environment. I care about the future. 
we need to change. I mean, I love everything TPPF is doing. I love education, trying to get at that these points. But it has to become so broadly understood that I, I, this isn't a really good analogy. But, you know, at some point in history, everyone thought that the really, really knowledgeable doctors were right about the idea that if someone's very, very ill, you should, you know, do bloodletting, like drain their blood. And now we're like, oh, my gosh, how could we have thought that? That was crazy. And I kind of want climate alarmism, the climate cult stuff, to, I want us to have that reaction. How could we have been so afraid of CO2? How do we get so overwhelmed by, <laughs> I'm serious, by this cult stuff that we actually sac sacrificed our comfort and our, and our um, you know, and we spent more money than we had to and we shut down industries and we ended jobs. I, I want us to get to that point. We look back and say, wow, that was just crazy. Oh, I love it when a climate alarmist, a climate cult member is sitting there drinking their Perrier or their San Pellegrino uh, and ingesting higher concentrations of CO2 than what's actually prevalent in the environment. You'd think they'd spontaneously combust, but no, they don't. They're actually ingesting carbon dioxide through a, you know, a, a sparkling water. Uh, and it's just absolutely absurd when they're trying to preach to us how we need to be living, the Al Gore's, the John Kerry's, of the world that are so completely out of touch because they're so wealthy that they think they know what is best for the American people. When you have Pete Buttigieg telling people to hurry up and buy electric vehicles, it's like hurry up and get a job where you make over $100,000 a year uh, so that you can afford an electric vehicle that Again, you'll have a limited range, and if you live in California, you won't be able to charge it between 5 and 10 p.m. Uh, it, it's just absolutely absurd. And there are studies that are now coming out regarding electric vehicles that show that uh, over the life, the emissions are higher uh, because of everything that goes into making that electric vehicle. Uh, it's almost like this, this beyond meat product where they were coming out and saying initially how much better it was for you health-wise. And the health benefits have proven not to be there. And now they're using the environmental claims. Oh, beyond meat because it's lower CO2 emissions, which is which is also absolutely absurd. Um, there's I was listening to a lady who wrote a book, uh, Sacred Cow. Uh, talking about you know, cattle producing. And uh, it was just in interesting to hear her talk about how the environmental climate cult has permeated its way into the agriculture industry. Uh, we're going to go beyond in the foundation here, not only in the state of Texas, but we're going to go to other states and we're going to push these, these policies that push back against this political woke ideology from financial institutions. We're seeing insurance companies like the Hartford Insurance. They won't make products available to companies that produce oil and gas or that are in the forestry industry. Uh, if you had a good forestry industry in the state of California, you wouldn't have near the forest fires you have because they actually manage the forest. They actually grow trees. They take trees down, which would reduce the cost of housing, which is skyrocketing here in the United States. They'd plant more trees, which, oh, by the way, would capture more CO2 from the atmosphere. There's just so much hypocrisy from the climate alarmists and the climate cult. Uh, and we're pushing back in Texas and we're going to continue to push back and hopefully bring them to the table. Let's have this conversation about how beneficial CO2 is to human flourishing and especially how beneficial fossil fuels are. Everything that we consume, that we wear, uh, that everything we touch on a daily basis is at one point in time had a very close connection to fossil fuels. It was either made with fossil fuels or was transported in a truck powered by fossil fuels. So we need to quit demonizing fossil fuels and realize that here in the United States, we stand over the key to ending poverty around the world. And that's with our responsibly produced energy and a good dense energy in the form of fossil fuels. So well said. This is, we're uh, friends who are listening to Jason Isaac. He's with the Texas Public Policy Foundation. They are at texaspolicy.com. He is their director of Life Powered, a great name, Life Powered. And I like that little tagline I mentioned at the beginning, a national initiative of TPPF to raise America's energy IQ. Because that's really what is needed is more people understanding the facts. And once you understand them, then you don't get pushed around by all the fear mongering and the alarmism and the cult mindset because you realize CO2 is healthy. It's good. We need it. Um, and you just aren't going to get as alarmed as alarmists need you to be. Need to be. So um, I, I thank you for everything you're doing. And again, I want to commend your writing at Epoch Times because you take really seriously complex issues and break them down very logically. And I think for everyone who reads uh, you there too, they must really, they, they have a new uh, 
Energy IQ, to use your term, new energy IQ. So, uh, Jason Isaac, thank you so much for joining me today. Debbie, thanks for having me on. It's great to see you again. Great to see you, sir. Okay, I will also tell you, friends, as we wrap up um, our show today, uh, I want to urge you to go, again, to go to our website, americacanbetalk.org, and check out our weekly newsletter. Sign up for that. Uh, check out the newsletter. Um, and also check out our one column we have where we do all of our um, Why It Matters columns. People seem to enjoy those, kind of summarize the show. And tune in to America Can We Talk every Monday through Thursday at 3 p.m. Central Time. I do this show to defend and speak up for America, the extraordinary, unique, great country that we are blessed to live in, America. I do this show because America matters. And I'll talk to you next time. America, can we talk truth about America?